This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Spy by James Fenimore Cooper Chapter 1 Quote, And though amidst the calm of thought entire, some high and haughty features might betray, a soul impetuous once, t'was earthly fire, that fled composure's intellectual ray, as Etna's fires grow dim before the rising day. End quote. Gertrude of Wyoming It was near the close of the year 1780 that a solitary traveller was seen pursuing his way through one of the numerous little valleys of Westchester. Begin footnote. As each state of the American Union has its own counties, it often happens that there are several which bear the same name. The scene of this tale is in New York, whose county of Westchester is the nearest joining to the city. End footnote. The easterly wind, with its chilling dampness and increasing violence, gave unerring notice of the approach of a storm, which, as usual, might be expected to continue for several days, and the experienced eye of the traveller was turned in vain, through the darkness of the evening, in quest of some convenient shelter, in which for the term of his confinement by the rain that already began to mix with the atmosphere in a thick mist, he might obtain such accommodations as his purposes required. Nothing whatever offered but the small and inconvenient tenements of the lower order of the inhabitants, with whom, in that immediate neighborhood, he did not think it either safe or politic to trust himself. The county of Westchester, after the British had obtained possession of the island of New York, begin footnote. The city of New York is situated on an island called Manhattan, but it is at one point separated from the county of Westchester by a creek of only a few feet in width. The bridge at this point is called King's Bridge. It was the scene of many skirmishes during the war, and is alluded to in this tale. Every Manhattanese knows the difference between Manhattan Island and the Island of Manhattan. The first is applied to a small district in the vicinity of Corlaire's Hook, while the last embraces the whole island, or the city and county of New York as it is termed in the laws. End footnote. Became common ground, in which both parties continued to act for the remainder of the war of the revolution. A large proportion of its inhabitants, either restrained by their attachments, or influenced by their fears, affected a neutrality they did not feel. The lower towns were, of course, more particularly under the dominion of the crown, while the upper, finding a security from the vicinity of the continental troops, were bold in asserting their revolutionary opinions, and their right to govern themselves. Great numbers, however, wore masks, which even to this day have not been thrown aside, and many an individual has gone down to the tomb stigmatized as a foe to the rights of his countrymen, while, in secret, he has been the useful agent of the leaders of the revolution. And, on the other hand, could the hidden repositories of diverse flaming patriots 
have been opened to the light of day, royal protections would have been discovered concealed under piles of British gold. At the sound of the tread of the noble horse ridden by the traveller, the mistress of the farmhouse he was passing at the time might be seen cautiously opening the door of the building to examine the stranger, and, perhaps, with an averted face communicating the result of her observations to her husband, who in the rear of the building was prepared to seek, if necessary, his ordinary place of concealment in the adjacent woods. The valley was situated about midway in the length of the county, and was sufficiently near to both armies to make the restitution of stolen goods no uncommon occurrence in that vicinity. It is true, the same articles were not always regained, but a summary substitute was generally resorted to, in the absence of legal justice, which restored to the loser the amount of his loss, and frequently with no inconsiderable addition for the temporary use of his property. In short, the law was momentarily extinct in that particular district, and justice was administered subject to the bias of personal interests and the passions of the strongest. The passage of a stranger, with an appearance of somewhat doubtful character, and mounted on an animal which, although unfurnished with any of the ordinary trappings of war, partook largely of the bold and upright carriage that distinguished his rider, gave rise to many surmises among the gazing inmates of the different habitations, and in some instances, where conscience was more than ordinarily awake, to no little alarm. Tired with the exercise of a day of unusual fatigue, and anxious to obtain a speedy shelter from the increasing violence of the storm, that now began to change its character to large drops of driving rain, the traveller determined, as a matter of necessity, to make an application for admission to the next dwelling that offered. An opportunity was not long wanting, and riding through a pair of neglected bars, he knocked loudly at the outer door of a building of a very humble exterior, without quitting his saddle. A female of middle age, with an outward bearing but little more prepossessing than that of her dwelling, appeared to answer the summons. The startled woman half closed her door again in affright, as she saw by the glare of a large wood fire a mounted man so unexpectedly near its threshold, and an expression of terror mingled with her natural curiosity, as she required his pleasure. Although the door was too nearly closed to admit of a minute scrutiny of the accommodations within, enough had been seen to cause the horseman to endeavour once more to penetrate the gloom with longing eyes in search of a more promising roof, before, with an ill-concealed reluctance, he stated his necessities and wishes. His request was listened to with evident unwillingness, and while yet unfinished, it was eagerly interrupted by the reply. "'I can't say I like to give lodgings to a stranger in these ticklish times,' said the female, in a pert, sharp key. "'I'm nothing but a forlorn, lone body. Or what's the same thing? There's nobody but the old gentleman at home. But a half-mile farther up the road is a house where you can get entertainment, and that for nothing. I'm sure t'will be much convenienter to them, and more agreeable to me.' because, as I said before, Harvey is away. I wish he'd take advice and leave off wandering. He's well-to-do in the world by this time, and he ought to leave off his uncertain courses 
and settle himself handsomely in life like other men of his years and property. But Harvey Birch will have his own way and die vagabond after all. The horseman did not wait to hear more than the advice to pursue his course up the road, but he had slowly turned his horse towards the bars and was gathering the folds of an ample cloak around his manly form, preparatory to facing the storm again, when something in the speech of the female suddenly arrested the movement. "'Is this, then, the dwelling of Harvey Birch?' he inquired, in an involuntary manner, apparently checking himself as he was about to utter more. "'Why, one can hardly say it is his dwelling,' replied the other, drawing a hurried breath like one eager to answer. He is never in it, or so seldom that I hardly remember his face when he does think it worth his while to show it to his poor old father and me. But it matters little to me, I am sure, if he ever comes back again or not. Turn in the first gate on your left. No, I care but little for my part whether Harvey ever shows his face again or not. Not I. And she closed the door abruptly on the horseman, who gladly extended his ride a half-mile farther, to obtain lodgings which promised both more comfort and greater security. Sufficient light yet remained to enable the traveller to distinguish the improvements. Begin footnote. Improvements is used by the Americans to express every degree of change in converting land from its state of wilderness to that of cultivation. In this meaning of the word it is an improvement to fell the trees and it is valued precisely by the supposed amount of the cost. End footnote. Which had been made in the cultivation, and in the general appearance of the grounds around the building to which he was now approaching. The house was of stone, long, low, and with a small wing at each extremity. A piazza extending along the front, with neatly turned pillars of wood, together with the good order and preservation of the fences and outbuildings, gave the place an air altogether superior to the common farmhouses of the country. After leading his horse behind an angle of the wall, where it was in some degree protected from the wind and rain, the traveller threw his valise over his arm, and knocked loudly at the entrance of the building for admission. An aged black soon appeared and without seeming to think it necessary, under the circumstances, to consult his superiors, first taking one prying look at the applicant, by the light of the candle in his hand, he acceded to the request for accommodations. The traveller was shown into an extremely neat parlour, where a fire had been lighted to cheer the dullness of an easterly storm and an October evening. After giving the valise into the keeping of his civil attendant, and politely repeating his request to the old gentleman who arose to receive him, and paying his compliments to the three ladies who were seated at work with their needles, the stranger commenced laying aside some of the outer garments which he had worn in his ride. On taking an extra handkerchief from his neck, and removing a cloak of blue cloth with a surtout of the same material, he exhibited to the scrutiny of the observant family party a tall and extremely graceful person of apparently fifty years of age. His countenance evinced a settled composure and dignity. His nose was straight and approaching to Grecian. His eye, of a grey colour, was quiet, thoughtful, and rather melancholy, the mouth and lower part of his face being expressive of decision and much character. His dress, being suited to the road, was simple and plain. 
but such as was worn by the higher class of his countrymen. He wore his own hair, dressed in a manner that gave a military air to his appearance, and which was rather heightened by his erect and conspicuously graceful carriage. His whole appearance was so impressive and so decidedly that of a gentleman, that as he finished laying aside the garments, the ladies arose from their seats, and together with the master of the house they received anew and returned the complimentary greetings which were again offered. The host was by several years the senior of the traveller, and by his manner, dress, and everything around him, showed he had seen much of life and the best society. The ladies were a maiden of forty, and two much younger, who did not seem indeed to have reached half those years. The bloom of the elder of these ladies had vanished, but her eyes and fine hair gave an extremely agreeable expression to her countenance, and there was a softness and an affability in her deportment that added a charm many more juvenile faces do not possess. The sisters, for such the resemblance between the younger females denoted them to be, were in all the pride of youth, and the roses, so eminently the property of the Westchester fair, glowed on their cheeks, and lighted their deep blue eyes with that luster which gives so much pleasure to the beholder, and which indicates so much internal innocence and peace. There was much of that feminine delicacy in the appearance of the three, which distinguishes the sex in this country, and like the gentlemen, their demeanour proved them to be women of the higher order of life. After handing a glass of excellent Madeira to his guest, Mr. Wharton, for so was the owner of this retired estate called, resumed his seat by the fire with another in his own hand. For a moment he paused, as if debating with his politeness, but at length threw an inquiring glance on the stranger, as he inquired, To whose health am I to have the honour of drinking? The traveller had also seated himself, and he sat unconsciously gazing on the fire, while Mr. Wharton spoke. Turning his eyes slowly on his host with a look of close observation, he replied with a faint tinge gathered on his features, Mr. Harper. Mr. Harper, resumed the other, with the formal precision of that day, I have the honour to drink your health, and to hope you will sustain no injury from the rain to which you have been exposed. Mr. Harper bowed in silence to the compliment, and he soon resumed the meditations from which he had been interrupted, and for which the long ride he had that day made, in the wind, might seem a very natural apology. The young ladies had again taken their seats beside the workstand, while their aunt, Miss Jeanette Peyton, withdrew to superintend the preparations necessary to appease the hunger of their unexpected visitor. A short silence prevailed, during which Mr. Harper was apparently enjoying the change in his situation, when Mr. Wharton again broke it, by inquiring whether smoke was disagreeable to his companion, to which, receiving an answer in the negative, he immediately resumed the pipe which had been laid aside at the entrance of the traveller. There was an evident desire on the part of the host to enter into conversation, but either from an apprehension of treading on dangerous ground, or an unwillingness to intrude upon the rather studied taciturnity of his guest, he several times hesitated, before he could venture to make any further remark. At length a movement from Mr. Harper, as he raised his eyes to the party in the room, encouraged him to proceed. 
"'I find it very difficult,' said Mr. Warden, cautiously avoiding at first such subjects as he wished to introduce, "'to procure that quality of tobacco for my evening's amusement to which I have been accustomed. "'I should think the shops in New York might furnish the best in the country,' calmly rejoined the other. "'Why, yes,' returned the host in a rather hesitating manner, lifting his eyes to the face of Harper, and lowering them quickly under his steady look. "'There must be plenty in town, but the war has made communication with the city, however innocent, too dangerous to be risked for so trifling an article as tobacco.' The box from which Mr. Wharton had just taken a supply for his pipe was lying open, within a few inches of the elbow of Harper, who took a small quantity from its contents and applied it to his tongue, in a manner perfectly natural, but one that filled his companion with alarm. Without, however, observing that the quality was of the most approved kind, the traveller relieved his host by relapsing again into his meditations. Mr. Wharton now felt unwilling to lose the advantage he had gained, and making an effort of more than usual vigour, he continued, "'I wish from the bottom of my heart this unnatural struggle was over.' that we might again meet our friends and relatives in peace and love. "'It is much to be desired,' said Harper, emphatically, again raising his eyes to the countenance of his host. "'I hear of no movement of consequence since the arrival of our new allies,' said Mr. Warden, shaking the ashes from his pipe and turning his back to the other under the pretense of receiving a coal from his youngest daughter." None have yet reached the public, I believe. Is it thought any important steps are about to be taken? continued Mr. Warden, still occupied with his daughter, yet suspending his employment in expectation of a reply. Is it intimated any are in agitation? Oh, nothing in particular, but it is natural to expect some new enterprise from so powerful a force as that under Rochambeau. Harper made an assenting inclination with his head, but no other reply to this remark, while Mr. Wharton, after lighting his pipe, resumed the subject. They appear more active in the South. Gates and Cornwallis seem willing to bring the war to an issue there. The brow of Harper contracted, and a deeper shade of melancholy crossed his features. His eye kindled with a transient beam of fire that spoke a latent source of deep feeling. The admiring gaze of the younger of the sisters had barely time to read its expression before it passed away, leaving in its room the acquired composure which marked the countenance of the stranger, and that impressive dignity which so conspicuously denotes the empire of reason. The elder sister made one or two movements in her chair, before she ventured to say in a tone which partook in no small measure of triumph, "'General Gates has been less fortunate with the Earl than with General Burgoyne. "'But General Gates is an Englishman, Sarah,' cried the younger lady, with quickness. Then, colouring to the eyes at her own boldness, she employed herself in tumbling over the contents of her work-basket, silently hoping the remark would be unnoticed. The traveller had turned his face from one sister to the other, as they had spoken in succession, and an almost imperceptible movement of the muscles of his mouth betrayed a new emotion as he playfully inquired of the younger, 
May I venture to ask what inference you would draw from that fact? Frances blushed yet deeper at this direct appeal to her opinions upon a subject on which she had incautiously spoken in the presence of a stranger. But finding an answer necessary after some little hesitation, and with a good deal of stammering in her manner, she replied, Only, only, sir, my sister and myself sometimes differ in our opinions of the prowess of the British. A smile of much meaning played on a face of infantile innocency as she concluded. On what particular points of their prowess do you differ? continued Harper, meeting her look of animation with a smile of almost paternal softness. Sarah thinks the British are never beaten, while I do not put so much faith in their invincibility. The traveller listened to her with that pleased indulgence with which virtuous age loves to contemplate the ardour of youthful innocence. But making no reply he turned to the fire, and continued for some time gazing on its embers in silence. Mr. Wharton had in vain endeavoured to pierce the disguise of his guest's political feelings, but while there was nothing forbidding in his countenance, there was nothing communicative. On the contrary, it was strikingly reserved, and the master of the house arose, in profound ignorance of what, in those days, was the most material point in the character of his guest, to lead the way into another room and to the supper-table. Mr. Harper offered his hand to Sarah Wharton and they entered the room together, while Frances followed, greatly at a loss to know whether she had not wounded the feelings of her father's inmate. The storm began to rage with great violence without, and the dashing rain on the sides of the building awakened that silent sense of enjoyment which is excited by such sounds in a room of quiet comfort and warmth, when a loud summons at the outer door again called the faithful black to the portal. In a minute the servant returned, and informed his master that another traveller, overtaken by the storm, desired to be admitted to the house for a shelter through the night. At the first sounds of the impatient summons of this new applicant, Mr. Wharton had risen from his seat in evident uneasiness, and with eyes glancing with quickness from his guest to the door of the room, he seemed to be expecting something to proceed from this second interruption connected with the stranger who had occasioned the first. He scarcely had time to bid the black, with a faint voice, to show this second comer in, before the door was thrown hastily open, and the stranger himself entered the apartment. He paused a moment, as the person of Harper met his view, and then, in a more formal manner, repeated the request he had before made through the servant. Mr. Wharton and his family disliked the appearance of this new visitor excessively, but the inclemency of the weather, and the uncertainty of the consequences, if he were refused the desired lodgings, compelled the old gentleman to give a reluctant acquiescence. Some of the dishes were replaced by the orders of Miss Peyton, and the weather-beaten intruder was invited to partake of the remains of the repast, from which the party had just risen. Throwing aside a rough greatcoat, he very composedly took the offered chair, and unceremoniously proceeded to allay the cravings of an appetite which appeared by no means delicate. But at every mouthful he would turn an unquiet eye on Harper, who studied his appearance with a closeness of investigation that was very embarrassing to its subject. At length, 
pouring out a glass of wine, the newcomer nodded significantly to his examiner, previously to swallowing the liquor, and said, with something of bitterness in his manner, "'I drink to our better acquaintance, sir. I believe this is the first time we have met, though your attention would seem to say otherwise.' The quality of the wine seemed greatly to his fancy, for on replacing the glass upon the table he gave his lips a smack that resounded through the room, and taking up the bottle he held it between himself and the light for a moment, in silent contemplation of its clear and brilliant color. "'I think we have never met before, sir,' replied Harper, with a slight smile on his features, as he observed the movements of the other. But appearing satisfied with his scrutiny, he turned to Sarah Wharton, who sat next him, and carelessly remarked, "'You doubtless find your present abode solitary after being accustomed to the gaieties of the city.' "'Oh, excessively so,' said Sarah, hastily. "'I do wish with my father that this cruel war was at an end, that we might return to our friends once more.' "'And you, Miss Frances?' Do you long as ardently for peace as your sister? On many accounts I certainly do, returned the other, venturing to steal a timid glance at her interrogator, and meeting the same benevolent expression of feeling as before, she continued as her own face lighted into one of its animated and bright smiles of intelligence. But not at the expense of the rights of my countrymen. Rights, repeated her sister, impatiently. Whose rights can be stronger than those of a sovereign? And what duty is clearer than to obey those who have a natural right to command? None, certainly, said Francis, laughing with great pleasantry. And taking the hand of her sister, affectionately within both of her own, she added with a smile directed towards Harper, I gave you to understand that my sister and myself differed in our political opinions. But we have an impartial umpire in my father, who loves his own countrymen, and he loves the British, so he takes sides with neither. Yes, said Mr. Wharton, in a little alarm, eyeing first one guest and then the other. I have near friends in both armies, and I dread a victory by either as a source of certain private misfortune. I take it you have little reason to apprehend much from the Yankees in that way, interrupted the guest at the table, coolly helping himself to another glass from the bottle he had admired. His Majesty may have more experienced troops than the Continentals, answered the host fearfully, but the Americans have met with distinguished success. Harper disregarded the observations of both, and rising he desired to be shown to his place of rest. A small boy was directed to guide him to his room, and wishing a courteous good-night to the whole party, the traveller withdrew. The knife and fork fell from the hands of the unwelcome intruder as the door closed on the retiring figure of Harper. He arose slowly from his seat, listening attentively. He approached the door of the room, opened it, seemed to attend to the retreating footsteps of the other, and, amidst the panic and astonishment of his companions, he closed it again. In an instant the red wig which concealed his black locks the large patch which hid half his face from observation, the stoop that had made him appear fifty years of age, disappeared. "'My father, my dear father,' cried the handsome young man, "'and you, my dearest sisters and aunt, have I at last met you again?' "'Heaven bless you, my Henry, my son,' 
exclaimed the astonished but delighted parent, while his sisters sank on his shoulders, dissolved in tears. The faithful old black, who had been reared from infancy in the house of his master, and who, as if in mockery of his degraded state, had been complimented with the name of Caesar, was the only other witness of this unexpected discovery of the son of Mr. Wharton. After receiving the extended hand of his young master, and imprinting on it a fervent kiss, Caesar withdrew. The boy did not re-enter the room, and the black himself, after some time, returned, just as the young British captain was exclaiming, "'But who is this Mr. Harper? Is he likely to betray me?' "'No, no, no, Massa Harry,' cried the negro, shaking his grey head confidently. "'I've been to sea. Massa Harper on he knee. Pray to God. No German who pray to God tell of good son come to see old father. Skinner do that. No Christian.' This poor opinion of the Skinners was not confined to Mr. Caesar Thompson, as he called himself, but Caesar Wharton, as he was styled by the little world to which he was known. The convenience and perhaps the necessities of the leaders of the American arms in the neighborhood of New York had induced them to employ certain subordinate agents of extremely irregular habits in executing their lesser plans of annoying the enemy. It was not a moment for fastidious inquiries into abuses of any description, and oppression and injustice were the natural consequences of the possession of a military power that was uncurbed by the restraints of civil authority. In time a distinct order of the community was formed, whose sole occupation appears to have been that of relieving their fellow-citizens from any little excess of temporal prosperity they might be thought to enjoy, under the pretense of patriotism and the love of liberty. Occasionally the aid of military authority was not wanting in enforcing these arbitrary distributions of worldly goods, and a petty holder of a commission in the state militia was to be seen giving the sanction of something like legality to acts of the most unlicensed robbery, and not infrequently of bloodshed. On the part of the British the stimulus of loyalty was by no means suffered to sleep where so fruitful a field offered on which it might be expended. But their freebooters were enrolled, and their efforts more systematized. Long experience had taught their leaders the efficacy of concentrated force, and unless tradition does great injustice to their exploits, the result did no little credit to their foresight. The core, we presume, from their known affection to that useful animal had received the quaint appellation of cowboys. Caesar was, however, far too loyal to associate men who held the commission of George the Third with the irregular warriors whose excesses he had so often witnessed, and from whose rapacity neither his poverty nor his bondage had suffered even him to escape uninjured. The cowboys, therefore, did not receive their proper portion of the black censure when he said no Christian, nothing but a Skinner, could betray a pious child while honoring his father with a visit so full of peril. End of chapter 1